Registrations are now open for the 8th Bioceuticals Research Symposium to be held in Melbourne from the 3rd to the 5th of April 2020. To register, please go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Amy Skilton is a qualified naturopath, nutritionist, medical herbalist and aesthetician. She's been in clinical practice for more than 16 years and worked concurrently for the Bioceuticals technical team for 13 years as a presenter, educator and writer. She specialises in several areas of integrative medicine, including women's health and hormones, natural fertility and healthy child development, gut restoration, as well as her favourite subject, skin health. Author of the book, Clear Skin Secrets, Amy's a truly holistic skin specialist who helps women struggling with acne achieve healthy, clear, beautiful, vibrant skin, naturally. Amy is the founder of whatthenaturopathsaid.com and theclearskincoach.com. And you can also connect with her on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Welcome back to FX Medicine, Amy. How are you going? Thanks, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here and I'm great. Thank you. <laughs> well, I'm surprising you're great seeing as what you've been through. You gave a rousing um, lecture at the Australasian Society of Building Biologists 2018 conference, not the least of which I was perturbed doesn't cut it. I was disgusted in the building quality. Um, you've been mm. through the ringer. Yes, I certainly have. Um, I've unfortunately become a, a very reluctant expert in all <laughs> things SIRS <laughs> and uh, mold illness and sick building syndrome, mm. um, mostly out of self-preservation uh, and ensuring that never happens to me again, and also uh, really trying to turn what was a, a an ultimately a life-destroying event into an opportunity for me to prevent anyone else having to go through what I went through uh, well, last year. That belies <laughs> your caring nature, I've got to say. Mm. So today we're going to be talking about histamine intolerance. Yes. What is it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's a great question. Histamine intolerance is a term that is used to describe really a collection of experiences someone will have as a result of a disequilibrium of histamine in the body whereby there is either um, a buildup of histamine or a, a, a perhaps an overexposure of histamine or an overproduction and or a reduction in the capacity for them to break histamine down and clear it out of the body. And it's certainly, um, I guess, a, a term that is becoming more and more widely known, I think in part because it's becoming a, a more common experience for people as well. Uh, but what I want to, I guess, say from the outset is it's one of those things that is used to describe experiences and observations, but unfortunately it's being used, um, I think, in sort of the general sense as a way to describe it as a condition or a disease. And so I hear people say, oh, I have histamine intolerance or, you know, an extreme presentation of it is mast cell activation syndrome. So right. I have, you know, I have MCAS. No, actually, that you don't. <laughs> you have a condition underneath that is causing that to be apparent yep. and for you to have this experience. And I guess um, if it sounds like I'm standing on a soapbox here, <laughs> I just realized it's coming out of my mouth like a bit of a rant. It's that uh, as a practitioner, it's frustrating to see people give names to these things they're experiencing and then just simply stop there and remain trapped in treating the symptoms um, as opposed to looking at the at the cause, or perhaps more accurately, the cause of the cause. Their symptoms are being caused by an issue with histamine, sure, but what is causing the histamine issue, I think, is 
a much more pressing question that needs answering. So it's kind of like I've got an iron deficiency, leave it at that and just treat yes. me with iron rather than yes. searching for the iron, the reason sure. that you're iron deficient. Is that right? Yeah, you can't just put on a badge and say, oh, I'm an, I'm an anemic. Yeah, you I'm know? an anemic. <laughs> I'm an anemic. Everybody. And proud of it. Anemia is all about as load iron, you know, and I have to take iron. And it's like, okay, well, that's cool, but you've only done half the half the work yeah. there. Yeah. I would just, I'm saying this because for the practitioners that are listening, any of your patients that are, you know, who have, in air quotes, histamine intolerance or MCAS, there's something underneath that that is causing that and you really need to be looking deeper as to what's going on underneath the surface. So when you're talking about histamine, most of us think about histamine being an immune reactive sort of complex, especially with allergies, the, mm. the mast cell degranulation and you get a sneeze, you get the itching eyes and the, the yep. pruritus and the erythema, that sort of thing. Um, mm. But it's also a neurotransmitter inside the brain with a totally different action. Yes, it is. It's quite funny, isn't it? For, I guess, probably the general public, um, the perception would be it is a, a pesky uh, compound in the body that is released in response to, you know, allergenic provocation or some sort of immunological response. And so it's got a bit of a bad rap. <laughs> but, you know, histamine is actually vital for alertness and learning and cognition and uh, it's part of the sleep-wake cycle and plays numerous roles in the brain as a neurotransmitter and as a chemical messenger throughout the body, actually regulating blood flow as well. And so it's not something that is inherently bad <laughs> at all. And it's not an, it's not something we want to get rid of entirely or can ever downregulate to a point where it's imperceptible or undetectable. Um, so certainly an appropriate level is required for healthy functioning. But the issue becomes um, apparent when the body is either not clearing it efficiently, and there's a number of reasons that that can happen, or there is an excess of histamine production in response to something, um, usually from the environment, although not always. And it's really looking at those things to, I guess, bring it back into balance that someone isn't suffering from the symptoms that we associate with excess histamine. Well, let's go into these symptoms then. I would imagine that there'd be a whole list and they'd be varied because you've got different histamine receptors in the body, H1 to 4. Take us through that. So I guess for anyone who's listening that is maybe not a medical practitioner, the symptoms that would probably spring to mind would be those of typical allergic reaction type symptoms. So, you know, runny nose, watery eyes, itchy nose and throat, sneezing, um, issues like urticaria or hives, itchy skin, um, swelling, redness, yeah. uh, and also conditions like asthma. Uh, but it certainly extends a lot further than that. And for anyone with gastrointestinal issues, they might be aware of the connection there and the triggering of diarrhea. For those who suffer from migraines, there's a connection with histamine there as well. Oh, okay. But actually, it's full system-wide uh, because we do, as you mentioned, have four classes of receptors and these are located in different organs and tissues. So, our H1 receptors are found in smooth muscle and endothelial cells, and these affect blood vessels and skin. And so um, medications like Benadryl or Claritine can certainly block the activity of these particular receptors. And, and these are the ones that we're really um, are aiming at when it comes to um, things like hay fever, for example. But further to that, we have H2 receptors in the intestinal tract. And so these can, when they are um, stimulated, can they control acid secretion and also through right through to abdominal pain and nausea. They also have a role with the heart rate as well via the vagus nerve there. Then we've got H3 receptors, which are found in the central nervous system. And I guess this is where the histamine's role as a neurotransmitter comes into play because this is where it connects into um, impact nerves, our sleep, 
our appetite and behaviour. Um, just to give you one example, in anorexic patients, they have much higher levels of histamine and this can actually downregulate appetite, make them feel not hungry at all. Mm. Um, and then with H4 receptors, we have those in the thymus, in the small intestine, spleen, large intestine, also in the bone marrow and white blood cells. And there's a very close connection here with inflammatory responses from the immune system. So when you think about each one of these organs and tissues and glands under the influence of histamine could create all kinds of symptoms. And I think this is why it can really um, be a bit difficult to pin down, especially if those allergy type symptoms don't appear to be so prevalent or marked. Forgive me, my understanding is that you've got a couple of them as well, H1 definitely, and another one where with regards to itch perception, and this is something mm -hmm. I just don't understand is if you're getting that receptor relevant for itch perception and it's found in the CNS, why don't you why doesn't your brain itch? <laughs> Well, our brain is missing a number of those um, sensory nerves. And so there isn't pain and there isn't itchiness to be detected by the brain. And thank goodness for that because <laughs> it would be quite difficult to scratch, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, I, I, I've often thought actually about um, the sensation of itch. Like it's a weird thing. We don't like it. But I'm just wondering if it's sort of this primordial evolutionary way of getting rid of a noxious agent through the skin by scratching and causing yes. breakage of, of the skin, leaking of, of fluid, which will hopefully carry that antigen away from you. Yeah. Well, I think that would absolutely be part of it. Not to mention that the physical sensations on our external organ that is the skin is mm. des are designed to draw us at att att our attention to yeah. something that is bothering us. So, you know, if you are starting to scratch at something, naturally you might be prompted to wash that area or apply something soothing to it to calm it down. And, and certainly in the case of something maybe coming through from the body, yes, actually increasing that circulation and allowing the immune system to clear it more quickly could absolutely be a possible mechanism as well. Yeah. Could I go back a little bit, Amy? You mentioned right back at the start that one of the issues was clearance of histamine mm. from the body rather than just production. So yes. can we talk a little bit about why that's such a big issue? What's controlling that or what's gone wrong? Okay, well, there's lots of things that can interrupt normal clearance of even normal histamine although this most will most commonly become apparent when there is an overproduction of histamine from some sort of environmental trigger. And what we need to look at when you're assessing someone's clearance rate are, of course, the two major enzymes that move histamine out of the body or rather metabolize it so that it can be eliminated via the bile, through the feces, and of course, through the urine. And those two enzymes are diamine oxidase or DAO for short and histamine N-methyltransferase, or HNMT. And there can be a number of factors that can contribute to the inhibition of the enzyme activity of either one of these. Uh, but of course, if there are things going on that are affecting both, you're going to have an even more difficult time clearing histamine out of the body. So if we start with Dow. Diamine oxidase is really the main enzyme responsible for degrading free histamine or that which is found in the extracellular space. It's also found, uh, it's also responsible, sorry, for clearing histamine from the diet that's coming in from the gut and reducing how much of it is actually uptaken into the body when we eat higher histamine foods or histamine provoking foods. So Dow was particularly found uh, in the intestinal mucosa. Now, what this means is anything that affects gut health is going to automatically impact diamine oxidase activity. Yep. So first of all, um, gastrointestinal inflammation. So you might see a temporary reduction in Dow activity as a result of gastroenteritis, infectious um, gastroenteritis particularly. We also know that gastrointestinal inflammation down-regulates phase two liver detoxification, which then also limits 
histamine metabolism. So knowing what we know about the general population's microflora and gastrointestinal integrity, we can see that a lot of people are probably walking around with suboptimal diamine oxidase activity because their gastrointestinal health is not where it should be. Having said that, that I don't believe is enough to create a, a state of histamine intolerance or MCAS, although that obviously will feed into it and then with other environmental triggers on top will absolutely be problematic. And I guess you can't consider the state of the gut without also looking at people's stress levels. We know that under the influence of adrenaline, circulation is diverted away from the gastrointestinal tract to other more vital organs, that those that are crucial for survival when we are in danger or under imminent threat. Now, most of us aren't, you know, walking down, um, you know, King Street in the city being chased by a tiger. <laughs> and, you know, so we're not having these um, extreme experiences of adrenaline and then clearing it and going back to a parasympathetic nervous system state. Most people are walking around with some degree or another of a sympathetic nervous system activation. And therefore, our digestive system is already compromised as a result which means gut inflammation, low Tao activity, and a down regulation of phase two detox in the liver as well. So there's that. So you can already see there that, you know, most people will have some element in their lifestyle that is already down regulating Tao activity. But when we add into that nutrient deficiencies, diamine oxidase requires vitamin C, B6, B12, iron, and copper to function properly. We touched on anemia just before. Iron deficiency is particularly common in women. Mm -hmm. And of course, women on the pill will also be deficient in vitamin C, B6 and B12. And so we start to see the odds stacked against someone um, nutrient repletion as well. But if you layer on top of that, medications that affect the production of diamine oxidase, we can also see issues are being you know stacked on top of those other factors mm. so alcohol antibiotics non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs certain antidepressants uh, antihistamines um, also ironically downregulate diamine oxidase which is designed to clear histamine <laughs> oh. um, which I find quite bizarre that's the perfect um, drug. <laughs> Yeah, treat it, treat a it? symptom and make you need it more often. Yes, yes, which could also account for that rebound histamine response when mm. you come off antihistamine drugs, um, and also certain antiarrhythmic medications and immune modulators. So there's a lot going on there, um, which would impact diamine oxidase. But that's just really one part of the equation because you've also got its teammate. Um, histamine N-methyltransferase or HNMT. And HNMT inactivates histamine via a different method and it does that in the intracellular space. And so it's expressed in many human tissues, but the highest levels are found in the liver and kidneys, which makes sense, are major detoxification organs, but also in the bronchi and trachea. So those incoming food pipe, windpipe areas where, of course, um, provocative antigens would present very easily and could very easily trigger histamine uh, when the immune system is unhappy with what's coming in. Um, further to that, it would be remiss of me to talk about HNMT without also referring to its deputy, monoamine oxidase B, right. because it's actually a bit of a two-part metabolism here where HNMT adds a methyl group um, onto histamine, and then uh, Maui also then further breaks that in methylhistamine compound down into other metabolites. Uh, Maui, just as a side note, needs B2 to function. So again, a B2 deficiency, um, irrespective of Dow activity and HNMT activity, could certainly see, um, I guess, a bottleneck with histamine clearance occur. 
But coming back to H&MT for a moment, there are certain things that will downregulate its activity as well. So like with Dow, it requires a number of nutrients to function effectively. And in the case of H&MT, as the name suggests, it requires methyl groups in order to be able to conjugate um, or, or transform histamine with that particular compound. So Choline, whether um, it's dietary or endogenously manufactured, and of course, S-adenosyl methionine is going to feed into that as well. And a deficiency in either of those is going to reduce the amount of methyl groups the body has to pull from in order to methylate histamine um, and then for a further breakdown. Further to that, we also know um, there are medications that inhibit HNMT, just like there are medications that inhibit Dow. So there's an anti-malarial drug, chloroquine, uh, chloroquine, sorry, that will actually downregulate HNMT. There are a number of other medications, including um, H1 antihistamines, uh, which again, funnily enough, downregulate histamine clearing enzymes. Folate antagonists will also impact, of course. H&MT because it's going to impact uh, methyl group production. Mm -hmm. And there's an Alzheimer's drug um, that also inhibits H&MT. So there's a lot really feeding into those um, two major enzymes. Can I just ask a question about um, the sort of purported treatment? When you're talking about inhibition of phase two and things like that, mm. naturopathically, you'd be thinking about treating the liver and the, and the gut the yes. sort of term attributed to that is leaky gut or intestinal permeability, which affects liver. Yes. So the treatment is really the same, isn't it? Yes, yes, absolutely it is. You know, they are really a, a, a tag team and the health of the gut drives the health of the liver and the health of the liver, of course, can't, can't not impact the gut. And so you absolutely can't just focus on one um, over the other. Mm. And that's why, you know, I always say with detox, not just the fact that 25% of it occurs in the lining of the gut itself, but you cannot touch the liver and try and encourage detoxification processes there unless you have sorted out the gastrointestinal tract first. Um, so, you know, certainly when you're looking at something like this, the same rules are going to apply. And of course, you want to be looking at the context of gastrointestinal health in terms of the microflora as well, because there are some bacterial species that um, do uh, produce enzymes that convert histidine to histamine and therefore can also be a source of exogenously produced histamine if you're looking at the lumen of the gut as outside of our of our system. Okay, so if we're talking about, let's say, the leaky gut treatment diet, so a low reactive diet mm. being advocated in this, do you have to be cautious about certain foods? Like, for instance, you know, avocados, for instance, would normally, you know, in a paleo lifestyle, it would be heralded as one of the great foods. Mm. Um, eggplant, certain shellfish, obviously going to avoid alcohol. Um, if you're going to be doing this, but um, yeah. what about uh, fermented foods? There you go. They're high sure. in histamine. So, you know, normally we'd be going, oh, great, get some fermented foods in you. Maybe yes. not. <laughs> you know, it, it, it of course always comes back to bio-individuality and everyone is going to be different. But certainly when you're looking at dietary management, there are a couple of things to keep in mind. And number one is that, any diet, whether it's a FODMAP diet or a low histamine diet or insert whatever diet here, anti-candida diet, they are designed as interim management systems whilst the underlying cause is being treated. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, a low histamine diet is not long-term or even medium-term. And, and yes, it does mean if you do if you are going to lower your dietary histamine intake in order to relieve your symptoms, there are going to be things in there that you would have otherwise considered healthy or in the case of fermented foods, good for gut health that would be really problematic for you mm. until your body can kind of catch up. So um, I guess on that note, you know, um, you would be it's pretty easy to find on the internet a list of high histamine foods, but obviously fermented foods are number one because the microorganisms that are doing the fermenting produce histamine as a as a metabolite. So 
Um, unfortunately, wine, champagne, beer um, are all in there. I know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Alcohol is a is a byproduct of microbial fermentation, and so that's you are going to find high histamine levels in there. Um, other fermented foods like vinegar and sauerkraut and soy and kombucha um, can also be problematic, but so too can things like cured meats. Soured foods, which have had some fermentation occur, um, dried fruits, aged cheeses, certain nuts and vegetables, like you mentioned, avocado, eggplant, spinach and tomato, um, smoked fish and also certain species of uh, fresh fish as well. And of course, processed foods of all types tend to be an issue because preservatives tend to be high in histamines. So as you are supporting your body to Uh, clear histamine more effectively and you're looking for the underlying causes, yes, reducing these things can certainly help to just take a bit of a load off the body. The other things to be mindful of, there are foods that don't actually contain histamine itself but can inhibit the action of diamine oxidase. And because diamine oxidase is the enzyme in the gut wall that is designed to really transform histamine from foods coming in from the diet is going to be a problem. So, look, alcohol also falls into that category, Um, but so does cow's milk and pineapple and shellfish and strawberries and tea, green tea and black tea. And so these things, um, whilst they're not high histamine foods themselves and some of them don't contain any histamine at all, they do inhibit Dow's function and right. therefore the ability of the body to clear histamine that way. Is there therefore a, a histamine intolerance diet, dare I say the term? Yeah, look, there is. There absolutely is. And a, a quick Google will find lots of recipes for low histamine foods and meals and um, and obviously a list of things to avoid. But it is important to be mindful that it is for a temporary purpose while you're dealing with what's underneath. Having said that, there are also things that can help increase the activity of diamine oxidase. And so um, including things that we know are going to upregulate Dow's activity is going to be an important part of that as well. So we've talked about some nutrients already and how the enzymes that clear histamine require those nutrients to function. So vitamin C is is one of those that supports diamine oxidase activity. It has a well-documented history of increasing Dow activity and lowering blood histamine levels. Um, Copper and zinc, interestingly enough, also have a relationship with um, Dow, and we know that insufficient levels of either of those decrease Dow activity. Now, it is far more common to have a zinc deficiency and, in turn, a copper excess than a copper deficiency, although I'm mentioning both because that isn't always the case. Um, Magnesium, interestingly enough, has a relationship with Dow activity as well. And animal studies found that a deficiency decreased um, the enzyme activity and increasing magnesium levels ramped it back up. But further to that, there's a relationship there with fiber. Um, In particular, one human study found that galactomannan significantly increased serum diamine oxidase activity, and this may be because of the way it helped, you know, clear um, metabolites through the through the gut, maybe through the feeding of microflora. Um, and maybe as a result of feeding the microflora, there were more um, microbial metabolites produced that improved gut health. Um, currently, the mechanism of action is not understood, but there was there was definitely a relationship there. And also, uh, long-chain fatty acid intake, um, so things like olive oil, also significantly increased diamine oxidase activity in a, do- in a dose-dependent manner also for that matter. So there are certain things you can be, I guess, increasing in your diet. They're going to really just ensure that those enzymes have got sufficient nutritional uh, repletion to function properly. Uh, Therapy-wise, if you're thinking about these galactomannans, do Mm. you have purified galactomannans or do you use, you know, like fenugreek tea or 
guagam or stuff like that? Well, certainly in this particular study, they used seven grams a day of pure galactomannan. But right, so purified. Yeah, but I think if you're using herbs or food sources of galactomannan, um, albeit probably not at the same level, you are going to be just offering your body just another element in order to be able to function optimally. And I guess bringing it back to the underlying cause, no one has a histamine intolerance because of a galactomannan deficiency. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's not a secret pill that everyone needs to rush out and find. It's a tool. Um, But it's a tool. Absolutely, it's a tool. And I guess when you look at how is it helping, what is its mechanism of action, you kind of circle back around to the role of good a good healthy gut is required for good healthy diamine oxidase activity. And and that's why you also see low DAO function with leaky gut, Crohn's disease, IBS, ulcerative colitis, celiac disease, non-celiac gluten intolerance, and of course, any form of dysbiosis, especially SIBO. And so if those things are going on, then obviously we're going to have compromised DAO activity and a low histamine diet is not going to sort that out for somebody. Can I ask a question regarding stewed apples rather than apples? Uh, Mike Ash talks about uh, an immunomodulatory diet where he uses stewed Bramley apples. Um, Now, I haven't I haven't looked at the equivalent in Australia, but I think it's ra- high raffinose um, mm-hmm. and it's stewing them and, the, and he puts cinnamon with them and things like that and then yeah. portions them out into these little ramekins and has, you know, th- has these throughout the day. Yeah. Hardly a low carb diet sort of thing and yet yes. heals the gut. Can <laughs> yes. it heal this or do you worry about the histamine or does stewing take, like where do you go with this sort of dietary intervention? Look, stewed apples and the raffinose content we know to be incredibly healing to the gastrointestinal tract. And as far as the type of apples go, I think the biggest thing is just making sure they're organic, especially if that's something you're going to be having every single day. Um, I certainly think that many people, even with histamine tolerance, would be able to tolerate this very easily. Uh, But again, everybody's different. Everybody's body burden is different. Everybody's, um, I guess, compromised enzyme function is varies from one degree to another. And it is certainly something that I wouldn't hesitate to recommend on a regular basis, but it is something that I would get them to start off with very small amounts and sort of titrate up to that daily dose that he recommends, which isn't huge, but just to test for their own individual tolerance and see how they how they go. Um, you, it's always you've got to look at the risk versus benefit, how much it's going to contribute to the problem. And again, it really comes down to what is triggering the overproduction of histamine. Are there certain people who they've always been sensitive to histamine overproduction or underclearance. They've just been that sort of, you know, do I say it sickly? Um, yeah, have they yeah always I know what you mean. That, you know, which I, I guess would allude to a genetic um, makeup, a SNP or something like that. Sure. But but yes, are these yes. sort of people chronically unwell or is there people who are usually robust uh, and then some assault happens and bang, they fall? There's a few there's a few different scenarios where histamine intolerance can show up, and certainly um, we probably all know that kid at school we grew up with who had allergies, right? Yeah. Who yeah. does constant allergies? Yeah. And certainly there are genetic polymorphisms that will impact histamine clearance. Of course, anything um, in the gene that codes for diamine oxidase or HNMT or monoamine oxidase production could compromise enzyme activity. And knowing what we know about um, the nutrients that are required for these enzymes to function, MTHFR can be an issue because then we see less methyl groups being produced and therefore we don't have methyl groups available to metabolize histamine via HNMT. You know, there are genes that code for vitamin C transport. If there's a polymorphism there and there's insufficient vitamin C delivery, DAO activity won't be optimal. And so for someone who's perhaps got a a long history of allergy type reactions and maybe even raised whole blood histamine, certainly that would suggest a 
genetic makeup whereby they have to be more vigilant with gut health and dietary intake of histamine. But for the most part, it does tend to be something that develops at some point in someone's life, usually in adulthood. And as you suggested, it's often a series of insults that occur, you know, stress, a bout of gastro when you're on holiday in Thailand, nutrient depletion plus alcohol and coffee consumption, and then, you know, maybe a really bad viral, you know, bout of some sort of viral infection. And then all of a sudden, you know, a house of cards comes tumbling down. And so with histamine intolerance, again, it's usually not just one thing and you've and it, and it's really no different to any other naturopathic approach. You're always going to look at the whole person and their whole history and see what needs to be fixed and start there. Um, but certainly one thing that I think practitioners are beginning to become aware of, but for the most part are still overlooking is the environmental triggers. And and what I mean by that is predominantly water-damaged buildings, Mm -hmm. although I will also include EMFs in that as well. Electromagnetic frequencies, right. Gotcha. Yes. Yes. So starting with EMFs, because I think that's probably a smaller subject, we are becoming increasingly exposed to EMFs and RF or radio frequencies and dirty electricity in our homes, especially with the increasing amount of smart appliances and smart meters and smartphones that we have. So, you know, electromagnetic fields can be created even just from wiring in the walls and we shouldn't be charging electronic devices by our heads, i.e. cell phones and electric alarm clocks. And then we have, you know, TVs in the bedroom now or, you know, um, the desk, the computer desk is on the other side of the wall to the bedroom where everything's plugged in. And then you've got the Wi-Fi router and cell phone towers and power lines. And we're becoming increasingly cooked by these frequencies, which are causing major immune damage. And as part of that, histamine production is being released. And, you know, people can experience, I think, a small fraction of that when you're talking on your phone too long and your head starts to get hot or you're holding your phone, scrolling through, you know, social media or reading the news and yet your hand starts to go a bit numb or a bit tingly or you might feel a hot patch in your back pocket where you've shoved your phone and it's been sitting there, you know, for half the day. And so when you think about all of these things and the cumulative effect that they have, we are constantly aggravating our immune system, affecting blood coagulation, affecting our central nervous system, degrading the blood-brain barrier, annoying the immune system, and as a, as a result of that, we can see histamine being released. And so I think uh, we've reached a day and an age where people not start need to be really need to start being cognizant of how our built environment and all of that, um, which it entails, is having a negative impact on our health. And yes, these things are a lot of fun. And yes, they're highly convenient. Um, and no, I, w- I don't want to go back to living in, you know, in a cave <laughs> myself. But we have to really start to be very responsible and and stop putting our heads in the sand and pretending that we don't know that these things are harmful to us. So there's that. But I think um, on a much larger and more serious scale is the sick building syndrome mm. or the impact of water-damaged buildings. And, you know, we, we mentioned this at the beginning of our podcast in the context of what I experienced last year where I developed full-blown chronic inflammatory response syndrome. But as a, as a subsequent consequence of SIRS, a histamine intolerance or mast cell activation syndrome is one of several, I guess, secondary side effects of the immune response. And when you look at what SIRS is, yes, there's a genetic susceptibility, but the environmental trigger is an unhealthy microbiome in the building. And or in the built environment. And I guess I'm saying it like that because it's not just the home that you live in, but it's the office that you work in. It's the car you drive in and the carpet and the cushioning and the air con yeah. or the public transport that you catch or the shopping mall you do or the movie theater that you visit on a regular basis. And what I want to say about that is 
a water event can encompass many different things. It could be a leaking pipe. It could be a, a roof leak. It could be a bath that overflowed or a, um, a dishwasher, you know, that has um, got a, a rubber seal that's degraded. Or it can even be just high humidity and even um, condensation problems. And essentially, where there is water, there is life. And so in a building, a water problem doesn't just trigger mold proliferation, but it also brings to life every single microorganism in that building, every virus and bacteria, as well as fungi. And so when you think about the way in which microorganisms trigger the immune system to respond, it makes perfect sense that a water-damaged building is going to trigger histamine release. Now, in a water-damaged building, you've also got mycotoxins from the mold. You've got endotoxins or LPS from the bacteria. You've got the inflammatory cytokines that they trigger. And, and then, of course, the oxidative stress and physiological stress that puts on your body and immune system, all of which will cause mast cell degranulation and therefore excessive production of histamine. And so, what upsets me is the thought of the thousands of people with histamine intolerance who are finding themselves becoming more and more histamine intolerance and, and being able to eat less and less things and having to take more and more medication. Meanwhile, they are living in an environment that is the single biggest factor that is driving their histamine production and they don't even know it. And so, a lot of people think about mold or a water-damaged building as something that's really obvious and you can see mold growing on a wall or a ceiling. But in my experience, 80% of the time, you can't see that mold at all. It's in ceiling cavities and wall cavities. And of course, when I say mold, mold is a proxy for all of the microorganisms in the building. And so we can't just think about our the microbiome in our gut. We have to think about the microbiome of our built environment as well. Then you go down this sort of, it sort of winds back to um, the question about are there people who are more sensitive? Um, you know, there's a, a slab outside our house, uh, in one area of our house. And um, when it rains, I should say when it drizzles, um, or, the, or the first sort of rain upon a hot slab, and I can immediately smell this sort of mildew smell. Mm, mm. Now, I don't get sick from it. I don't like it. It yeah. says, oh, I've got to prime that. <laughs> yeah. um, but I don't get sick from it. And yet sure. then you'll get others that will just go, oh, yeah, whatever. And then you'll get people that will just fall flat on their face. So yeah. there's this whole variety of different canaries, um, you know? Yes, and, different responses. Yeah. And I think there's a combination of reasons for that and certainly genetic susceptibility, particularly as it pertains to SIRS or chronic inflammatory response syndrome, um, that is very much separates the canaries from the rest of the pack. Um, and But it also depends on where the mould is, the species of mould, the mycotoxins it's producing. And so... I think, you know, somewhere outside tends to be far less problematic than inside. And, and it also depends on the substrate that it's growing on yes. and the source of the water and how, I guess, the supply of the water as well. Part of the issue with water-damaged buildings is the substrate that the microorganisms are growing on, particularly the fungi, because as it degrades um, the particle board and the chip rock and the MDF and the carpets and the paints, um, all of the chemicals that and the glues and the dyes and the you know potential other contaminants that are present in those building materials are also aerosolized and released into the breathing space. And so, you know, if you have a slab outside with mold on it, it's really not affecting your indoor air quality too much. You're not breathing it 24-7 as you sleep at night in your bed or sit in your living room. Um, and nor is it really degrading that concrete and releasing the chemicals in it. But when you look at the actual home you're in or the office you're in or the car, it's not just the microorganisms or their metabolites. It's the other things they are releasing into the airspace as well that become really problematic. 
Even then, though, I hear what you're saying, depending on your genetic capability for detoxification and breaking down histamine and your nutrient repletion and your gut health and your stress levels, everyone's response is going to be different. And a single person's response may be different at different times. Mm. But rest assured, once your immune system's kind of sunk below the waves and you start to see this excess histamine production, you really need to sort the environment out. Otherwise, you will never get well and you'll never recover and you'll end up having to manage your symptoms for the rest of your life, which I just think is a total travesty and totally unnecessary. How do you prioritise testing and what do you test? Like Mm. speaking to people at the ASBB conference 2018, one of the conundrums I keep sort of going round in my mind, I haven't reached the the settling point yet is, do you test the home first or do you mm. wait till somebody's sick and do tests on them first mm. until you reach a stage where you've got nowhere and then you go, oh, it's got to be the home. There was this whole issue of prioritisation. Yes, it's tricky. I, yeah. It is really tricky because um, commonly what happens, and certainly prior to my experience with SIRS, um, I would commonly operate in this way too. And that is, you know, do a thorough case take of the medical history and the diet and the lifestyle and medications and, you know, family history and all of that sort of stuff. And Typically, it would be maybe a couple of months into treatment if they were failing to respond or failing to respond in a manner in which would be typical, that would then lead me to ask questions yeah. about whether or not there was something in, in the environment that was getting in the way of recovery. And having been through what I've been through now, I think as much as it's going to add more time and effort perhaps to the consult, it really at least needs to be in the pre-consultation questionnaire around events in the home. And, and there's really some obvious red I think flags I agree. to me now. Yeah, <laughs> I really yeah. do. Yeah, look, now that, I've, now that I've been through it, there are now really obvious red flags to me um, of an environmentally acquired illness that I would not have otherwise been aware of. And so I think exploring this area, if it's not something that uh, a prackie got taught in college, should really be a priority. But um, I think it depends on the severity of the issue and, of course, responsiveness of treatment. But in the questionnaire, and this is where Nicole Balsma is um, going to be really, I think, improving things for practitioners <laughs> pre-screening, is a, a really great... I heard the questionnaire she's designing is the perfect addition yep. to, you know, a health questionnaire we already offer our clients, patients, um, in order to actually see where there are things that perhaps are going to um, escalate the building assessment up the priority list. Now, I've touched on some examples of water events um, already, and so those, of course, are included in her questionnaire, but I think... To be honest, it needs to become almost as important as everything else, if not as important from the get-go. Now, calling a building biologist in is an investment, and I don't think people should straight out of the gate ring one up um, without any sort of indication either symptom-wise or in the house history-wise that points to that, um, only because you could throw away a lot of money and, and ultimately find nothing yeah. um, or not find anything of value, I should say. But I think more and more this is an area that people are going to be exercising and utilizing more because there literally isn't a supplement or herb or even a pharmaceutical medication that can sort somebody out to the point where they can tolerate a water-damaged building. And that's really the bottom line. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing that woke me up at that conference was to move the prioritization about the environment, your environment, your local mm. environment, um, yes. from the last part of the questionnaire to, I mean, seriously, the second Yes. You know, it was basically name, age, presenting symptoms, environment. Yeah, um, I agree. Way I agree. before labs. And, and my mindset is, shouldn't we be trying to get rid of these as a possible cause first? Not to yes. find them, but to actually get rid of them. Yes, And then I you agree. can go, it's not that, 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 it's leaky gut. It's just leaky yes, gut. Don't yes, worry about it. Yes. You know, um, yep. and you could save yourself a whole lot of heartache rather than going through 
hundreds of dollars of um, consultations and, you know, trying yeah. things out with therapies and only to find that it was the, you know, the rug that yeah, you had a leaked bathroom three years ago and it's um, mm. it's been water damaged, this sort of thing, you know. it's to- Totally. I mean, when you think about it, we, when we consider someone's health, we know that their daily habits, their stress management, the sleep they get, the food they mm. eat, how much water they drink mm. are huge factors yeah. in their well-being. But we spend up to 95% of our time indoors making our built environment the single biggest factor or influence on our health. And to be honest, I think if we all revisited the health of our homes and the rest of our built environment, we would all be a lot better off um, anyway. Uh, But certainly getting that sorted out first, you know, we have so many symptoms in relationship to neurotransmitter imbalances and um, immune aberrant immune responses and hormonal dysfunction. But when you think about it, all of those things are simply a response to an environmental provocation. And, you know, we look at, you know, our gut microflora as one of those sources, but all of these external environment Um, environmental factors also influence our gut flora. And it looks like now that the microbiome of the home is a huge contributor to SIBO and dysbiosis and liver dysfunction and poor bile production and altered gastrointestinal pH. And so I'm really now looking at everything that goes wrong in our body what is it in the environment that could be causing it to respond that yeah, way? Yeah. You know, I do understand that genetic polymorphisms and our genetic makeup um, set us up to have a unique response to the environment. So I'm not taking away from that everybody is different. But for the most part, we are all designed to be healthy and happy and well and vital. And if we're not, what is it outside of ourselves that is causing our body to respond? in a way that doesn't make us feel good. Amy Skilton, thank you so much for taking us through. I mean, this is, this is talk about rabbit holes. This is yeah. something you really need, I would say, to be trained in. Um, Agree. Yeah, and, and I'm so glad, in a way, I'm sorry to say this, but I'm so glad that it's woken you up to, <laughs> yes, me too. to help other people. I, I, I feel horrible for what you've been through because I, I, you know, I've seen the before and after sort of thing and you're picking yourself up now, but you oh, really yes. went through hell there for months and months and months. So thanks yes. for taking us through this on FX Medicine. Thank you so much, Andrew. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. The Naturepreneur Experience is back in February 2020. NADEX 2020 will carry the theme of love your work, love yourself, love your life. Over 20 speakers will bring you the latest information on running a successful practice, including money mindset, expert consultations, passive income streams, and much, much more. For more information, click on events under the community tab at fxmedicine.com.au